Welcome to the Life Sciences WA Investment Series. Investor meets innovator. Hosted by Dr. Tracy Wilkinson, Director for Stakeholder Engagement WA at MTP Connect, WA Life Sciences Innovation Hub, and me, Peter Birch, from Talking Health Tech. In this limited podcast series, we've brought together a number of conversations with experts from medical science to finance to help demystify investing in biotech, medtech, and digital health, also known as the life sciences. In the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connection to land, seas, and community. We pay respect to elders past, present, and emerging, and extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening today. The information in this podcast is general in nature and should not be taken as a substitute for professional or financial advice. G'day, Tracy. G'day, Pete. In this series about investing in life sciences, we're talking a bit more about medical devices today. Is that right? We are. We're talking about medical devices and medical technologies. I had a really interesting conversation with two people from WA that have got long, like decades long experience in investing and commercialising in, in medical technologies and devices. And they really took us through the, a bit of an overview about medical devices and medical technologies, what they are. It's a Band-Aid. It's also a digital device. It's also something that you can implant into your body. And then also a nice overview of how those devices get to market as well from their perspectives. And really interesting to hear their background story as well. They both shared a little bit of their origin story, so to speak, and how they ended up in this sector, which is a really, really interesting insight. So it was great to sit down with Paul Watt from Abyssinia Systems and Libby McCall from UR Ventures for this chat. Well, welcome, Paul. Welcome, Libby. I'm looking forward to talking to you today and getting your insights from being a local investor and a local entrepreneur here in WA. And I'm going to start by asking Libby to just introduce yourself and your background and a bit about your experience as an investor here in WA. Sure. My name is Lydia McCall and I'm a Perth girl. I did finance and law at UWA and finished at ANU with honours. And then I worked for Mallison's as a law firm, then moved to Macquarie Bank doing mergers and acquisitions and actually ended up in biotech through a bit of serendipity. I was living in Canada, having set up an office over there, focusing on mining M&A, international cross-border mining and moved to Boston for personal reasons and fell into a biotechnology project. And at the end of that project, it was a medical device that we took from the research lab to an FDA approved device. At the end of that, working with my business partner, we said, well, that was kind of fun. It was really interesting. <laughs> it was a great jigsaw puzzle. Let's go and do it again. And that was 20 plus years ago. So over that period of time, we've taken a number of medical devices, a number of drugs through to FDA approvals and partway through that got the opportunity to set up as a venture capital fund. Um, so for the last 10 years I've also been investing into companies as well. Excellent. Well, I'm looking forward to getting some of that experience of 20 years worth of investing in medical devices. And Paul, let's hear from you. Yeah, my name is Paul Watt. I'm one of the co-founders of Avicenna Systems and also its executive chair and chief scientist, but I guess the last 20 years or so, I've been in medical devices and biotech companies. 
I'm also from Perth. I did a degree in biochemistry and microbiology at UWA before doing a doctorate in Oxford and then postdocs over in Harvard and back in Oxford. But once we'd had our first child, we decided to bring up our children, I now have four, in Western Australia, where I've been kind of ever since, except for a few years uh, spent back in Oxford on a couple of occasions. And I guess I got involved in medical devices first for my son, who's now 27, when he was a toddler. And he had an asthma problem. I took asthma very seriously because my mum had died of an asthma attack. And, and so basically, he just wasn't taking his asthma medication as a toddler using the spacer devices. And I invented a medical device called the Funhaler that, were, that you know, was on the new inventors. It was a sort of kitchen table invention, but then we... It was on the new inventors TV show. Yeah, and then we got a... But then we got a, a sort of a company around it and we ended up, it was all patented and we got the regulatory approvals in the US and TGA and, or, and also CMARC in, in Europe. And that sold for a few years, interestingly, mostly in the Middle East and in France, which is interesting. And, uh, but that gave me a bit of a taste for commercialization of medical technology. I was originally a molecular biologist, which is kind of geneticist. I studied genes and that sort of stuff in cancer, but I've been very enthusiastic about the commercialization of technology as a way of translating and getting it out to patients. So that it has impacts on those patients. Yeah. yeah. So Lydia, coming back to you, so we've heard about how you fell into the biotech sector and never never left, so to speak, and we're lucky to have you. So thank you for that. Can you tell us a little bit about UR Capital that you spoke about, maybe a bit of an overview of the, of the fund? We don't have too many venture funds in, in WA, do we? No, we, we don't. So UR Capital was formed as part of one of the federal government initi initiatives under the Innovation Investment Fund program, and it was a $40 million fund. It actually was a mixed fund. By that I mean we did biotech and IT. So I'm not entirely biotech. I, I do do some IT. We had an IT company, Agweld, that we sold last year to Semios in Canada for north of 100 mil. But it was a, a start for venture capital, that federal government program. And the benefits of it are is it did get a focus around venture capital, but the structures that are employed are defined end funds and at the end of it, legally, you've got to wind up. And so the fund operated the first five years you were investing, the, the follow-on five-odd years, it was complicated a bit with COVID, um, you grow your companies and you exit them. And so we're at the close fund date of our fund, literally really this sort of month, it, it formally winds up. And it's been a, a good experience. We've had some good exits. Um, we, had, we did do a mix of IT and um, biotech. We've got a number of companies that are in phase one, phase two clinical trials out of that. I guess the interest that came was half that money came from the government, half of it came from private sector investors that were keen to support the space and grow that. And that's also been a great thing. One of the things that is very apparent and it makes sense is if you're investing, it's always easier to invest close to home. And that's one of the limitations for Western Australia. When you've got venture capital funds, might be easy to say, yes, we've got them in Australia, but if they're in Melbourne or Sydney, their first preference is going to be investing into a Melbourne or Sydney project because it's so much easier to go down to the lab, review what's been done, talk on a really regular basis with your researchers, particularly if you're going from research projects, which is where we are focused, very early stage projects, taking them from the lab into clinic. 
That's re- yeah, really early stage. Yeah. So we, would you help found the company then? Really? We would found yeah. the company. Sometimes they had been founded, but often we would found, we would help craft the initial patents. We'd put in place all the shareholders' agreements, all the various structures in place, make sure it was tax effective for founders. A lot of work goes into it. And one of the problems for a fund at an early stage is it takes as much work to set a company up for a $1 million investment as it does for a $10 million investment. So you, you really have to be hands-on. Yeah. And, and Paul, coming to you, I thought it'd be good to start with a bit of a commercialisation of 101 on medical devices, on med tech, so to speak. So what is med tech slash medical devices? What are we talking about? Is it right. implantables, diagnostics? Right. So medical devices is an incredibly broad term. And the term comes from the regulatory agencies that in most countries govern whether you're allowed to make claims for a medical device. And so there are rules governing everything from a thermometer that you might have, that's a a medical device in most countries, through to apps on phones that make kind of diagnostic claims. They're medical devices. They actually, it's quite difficult to get the approvals for those sorts of devices, through to when you go and get a scan done with an imaging machine, they're medical devices, and the software is also regulated as a medical device in, in many cases through to, for example, the company I'm involved in, which is Avicenna Systems. We have a medical device, which is like a laboratory type device, which does screening for viruses like COVID or flu and those sorts of viruses. And that counts as a medical device. But there are also medical devices. And there's a company in Western Australia called Orthorex. They're an example. There are medical devices that are implantable. In the case of Orthorex, it's a screw that goes into bone but there are other sorts of implantables. And when people get knee surgery, what goes into them is a medical device and even bandages. Or another company I used to be involved in, Avita Medical, had spray-on skin that Fiona Wood and Marie Stoner invented. That technology is registered, even though it might not seem so, but it's it's registered and has approvals internationally as a medical device. It's a really old. You can also get companies that sort of sit across both. So one of our RSD companies, it's a slow-release drug from a polymer system that's implanted into the eye. And so you've got a complicated pathway to work. So you are actually implanting a device, but it's releasing a drug as well. And that's in its phase two trials for glaucoma can release, the system itself can release a range, range of different drugs. But yeah, so it, it is a complicated space. Yeah. I think complicated is definitely the word for it. Yeah. So can you talk us through then kind of what it looks like to take what's the life cycle or the development pathway then of, of medical devices? Is there something I, some sort of generic that we can help to I introduce? don't know that it's generic because it is so dependent on what and it, is. it depends what pathway. Like the first one that we took through, that the project that got me fascinated, was actually implantable, but it was enabled to be approved through a process called a 510K, which is very unusual for an implantable. So it was an artificial cornea and it was also a polymer. And so we were able to take that from the lab to an FDA-approved product, CE Mark and TGA, in the space of a number of years, sort of three to four years, which is very, very short. And in that process, we actually set up an FDA-certified laboratory in Australia for manufacturing and then the terminal cryolating to get an optical surface on that was done in the US with a contact lens group over there that was able to set up that, that tech transfer with us. But that 
has all sorts of unique features that just came into play because most people, when we were saying to them, it is a 510k route for approval, could not believe it because most implantable devices will not be approved through that regulatory process. Yeah. So you really have to go back and say, what is the approval process for whatever you're trying to take forward? So just to just to go back to definitions for someone that's not familiar with with FDA and and, and acronyms, maybe Paul, you I want could to talk about in yeah. So I mean, there are there are various routes for approval of medical devices in the US. The most commonly used route is the five ten k route, but there's also what's called a de novo application route, which means that the five ten k route is where you compare your device to what's called a predicate device, which is a device that's already approved and you show substantial equivalence of your device to the approved device. So that's the 510K route. But if you can argue that your device is so new that there isn't really a comparable standard to compare to, then you can go down this de novo route. And there are other types of approvals that you can also have that still enable you to do diagnostic screening. So for example, in the US, there are laboratory developed tests and we have an equivalent in Australia, which is called an in-house IVD pathway, which is where a, an accredited pathology laboratory is able to develop a test in-house. And then what they can do is benchmark that test against certain standards and then notify the regulatory agencies that they're satisfied of equivalence being met for those standards. So there are multiple paths in different jurisdictions for the approval of these medical devices. Yeah, so it's one and done. As an investor, you've got to also take into account the 510k route to get approved is often the fastest thing. But as Paul pointed out, you're comparing it to what's called the predicate. Commercially, if I have got something approved under a regulatory process and I've compared it to the predicate, the comparison simply says it's as good as. It's not showing necessarily that it's better at than unless you've actually set up your trial to collect all that additional data, which you don't actually need for the regulatory approval. But commercially, you do need that additional data because I've got a new device and I think it's great, but all I can do is go out and market and say it's as good as the current one in, in supply. Why are people going to switch to my device? So you actually have to think of the regulatory pathway as part of the investment pathway as well and say, okay, this is the hurdle to get regulatory approval. But what do I have to do on top of that to market it and make it a commercially palatable or an opportunity that will fall under the reimbursement codes? Because that's one of the other problems you get as well by setting up a de novo application. Then when it's approved, who pays for it and what do they pay for it and how does it get reimbursed? And you have this weird metric and process that can take multiple years to get new reimbursement codes set up. So you want to look at the regulatory path and find the lowest hurdle to go through, but then you want to say, well, what on top of that do I need to do to make this long-term investable and make people want to use it commercially? Yeah, I think that's a really good point, Lee. So I think the fact that you need to think about the commercial path and, and who would want and what how this device is differentiated from competition is really, really important and who will pay for it. And I think in a lot of medical devices that I've seen, uh, because I've also had a technology transfer role, which is where you work in a medical research institute and you help with finding technology and helping that technology be licensed. And what I think the, the problem with a lot of approaches to medical innovation is really forgetting that in the end there has to be a customer and someone needs to pay for it. And I think there are a lot of solutions out there in the medical device world to either non-problems 
or problems that can't be solved that way. So for example, the product that people are trying to develop might cost 10 times as much as the competing products and people aren't going to pay 10 times as much. So I think the first stage in medical device innovation is really to understand the problem and not just believe yourself, but rather test the market and engage with potential customers incredibly early and try to understand really what the problem is that you need to solve and what they're prepared to pay and what the reimbursement rates are. And I think at the end of the day, that's, if you like, reverse engineering the solution once you really understand the problem is really, really critical. And I think that's part of the problem. I think people get too far down the innovation path without thinking about those problems earlier on. And I think there's often a confusion because people see that the clinician is the consumer, but they're not because they don't pay for it. They might want to use it. They might go, look, it's definitely better than what's out there. But if it's a, and as Paul pointed out, if it's, if it's 10% better, that might make a big difference to the clinician and their speed of surgery or something. But if it's going to cost 10 times as much, it's not going to get paid for by the insurance companies. So you actually have to distinguish between the passion of the clinician that can see a benefit and the reality of who's actually going to pay for it, which is unfortunately not the person who will have that device used on them or in them. It's not the clinician using it. It will be a third party who is driven by dollars and cents. I mean, that's what insurance companies are driven by. Yeah. And it might, if it was used in a hospital or a health system, it might be the procurement office of that health yeah. system. And so you need a compelling proposition. And one thing I learned with a device that I invented a long time ago, which was sold through chemists, was what I learned was the size of the, the SKU that was sold under in its packaging, we wanted to display the device nicely in its packaging. That took up a lot of space in the chemists. And of course, if you want people to display your device, you need to think about the profit margins, both for the wholesalers and the chemists. And if you've got a, a lower margin device, then it's taking up a lot of shelf space. Then actually they will display another product that gives them higher margins. And so we found, for example, in where that mattered, we sold more online because it doesn't matter than we sold through some of their chemists. So it's kind of interesting things like that, which you normally wouldn't think about when you're thinking about commercialising a medical product, is you know really understanding it from the customer's perspective. And often there are a lot of stakeholders in that chain, you know, understanding it from the the wholesalers' perspective, understanding the logistics chain, how will this be shipped? It doesn't require cold chain shipment, that sort of stuff, but also understanding it from the retailer's perspective as well. So one of that slightly different version of retailer is working with some clinicians and they got paid under their reimbursement thing for visits every six months. So if we created a device that had to be monitored every three months, that was problematic for them because they would have to bring their patients back in Patients aren't used to paying for their own medical. It's meant to come out the insurance. The insurance wouldn't cover it. And, you know, they themselves had, you know, waiting lists. So they would not have readily adopted a device that had to be monitored every three months. So it was very important to make sure that it was every six months. And in the same way, it was very important to make sure it wasn't every 12 months because they wanted their patients to come in on the six-month visit because it wasn't just that incident that they would monitor, they'd look at other things and just have an ongoing checkup. And that fitted 
their reimbursement model, which actually is quite independent of the device reimbursement, but it had to fit their flow and their, their way of working. Yeah. And part of the problem is that flow and that way of working might be very different in different markets. So you also have to have in your head, what is your primary market, which is often the US, and so, okay, well, how does it fit that reimbursement? And it's not just the device I'm looking at, it's how the surgeon, the GP, the, whoever's delivering it will work. A lot, a lot of things to consider mm. for, uh, when, when talking about these. Like such a jigsaw puzzle. It's yeah, just, like yeah. I can see why, but it's fascinating yeah. jigsaw puzzle, right? Mm. Um, so talking about differences, we're in, we're in Perth, mining capital of the world, arguably, and we see a lot of investment in the mining sector. I wonder if, if, if you can talk through sort of what are the key differences between a life sciences opportunity and a mining one? I think are the they primary apart? one, well, what the, one of the biggest differences is, you know, if you're a gold miner, yes, there's different types of gold deposits, you know, and you might be above ground, underground, you might have different ways of getting the gold out, but they're fairly known processes. So you can take a team from one gold mine, not completely, but to another gold mine and they can work. It's not the same when you're commercialising biotech. You know, taking someone with a really deep knowledge of G-progeny coupled receptors to someone with really deep knowledge of polymer chemistry, they don't necessarily overlap. They don't necessarily even have common terminology. And so it's not easy to find replacement people to pick up your mine or your product. And so that's the biggest thing, that the resourcing around it. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, there's, there's transferable skills and you, you learn to critically analyse and look at it. I mean, after 20-odd years, I haven't started off with a science background, but after 20-odd years, I am on patents for drugs that are in phase three clinical trials. You, you learn a lot across a, a spectrum of spaces. You just have to. So those skills are transferable, but maybe not as immediately hit the ground running as you could have from a mining operation. Yeah, right. And what about, you? any thoughts or insights? Yeah, I do think there are some, I think there are crucial differences there. The other crucial difference with the resources industry is often the approval is early on so that people might have some sort of mining tenement right over that particular resource to explore and there's that approval. There are obviously subsequent approvals to build production facilities. But in the medical device world, there are these milestones of approvals that you need to go through and they can take a long time. They can take one or two years or, or longer to get through the approval process for medical devices and to allow those devices to be sold in the market. But it's important to remember the similarities with the resources industry as well. So in oil and gas and in mining, it's quite common to have different companies discovering the resources as the companies that exploit the resources. And it's really important to remember that when you look at the revenues that come from medical device companies, nearly all medical devices that I know that have been successful, those devices, the ultimate acquirer of that technology was a company, a larger company, that was actually the revenue extractor, the key revenue extractor from that technology in most of the cases. There are, there are, there are other cases, of course, like medical devices, which are apps and small point of care devices and other sorts of devices, where in fact, the revenue is generated in the discovery company. But mostly with medical devices, they might have small amounts of revenue early on as they prove the resource because people pay them to prove that resource or maybe to get licenses or options over the technology. But at the end of the day, somebody else exploits that technology and they're the ones whose 
revenue in the end matters to the ultimate value of that technology. And that's true in oil and gas and its exploration, and it's true in mining. So the companies discovering the resource are proving the value of the resource, so the quality of the sections, so the ore sections, or the quality of the energy source that's coming out of the, the wells. And they are ultimately licensing rights to larger companies who, in the end, exploit that resource and extract most of the revenue. And the valuation approach that's used is quite sophisticated in those markets, and often they'll use a real options type valuation or another sort of... But what they don't do typically, they want to value an exploration resource, is do a DCF, sort of net present value calculation, on the revenue of the exploration company because it's largely irrelevant to the value of the resource where the revenues are being created in the ultimate exploiter of the resource. And so I think it's really, really important when looking at valuation, especially of early stage medical device companies, to look at evidence for real value milestones, evidence that real international companies want to partner or engage with those companies. But bear in mind that the revenues of those companies is not where the value is. Those companies are largely capital growth plays, not revenue plays in those companies. And so what an investor is investing in is the milestones that generate capital growth value, which is ultimately exploited in a trade sale acquisition or licenses or whatever from the sorts of companies that ultimately exploit the resource. I think the other difference as well actually comes back to the patent framework as well that biotechs operate under. You basically file your patent and you've got a 20-year life unless you can find ways to extend that. And there are many ways to extend it, but you, know, you might extend your 20-year patent life by another 10 years or so, depending how you do it. Whereas if you are an exploration company and you have a, a great ore resource, you're not constrained by that patent life, you're constrained by the life of that ore resource. And so we're working within a, a tight time frame to get the approvals as fast as we can with a finite patent window at the end of it. Because if you get too late to the end of your patent life and you don't have a strategy, might be great product, but any of your purchases are going to go, well, let's wait three years and we'll you know, just roll it out as a generic. So you do have to think about that. And that also comes back to the decision-making right at the beginning of the research lab. Should we patent yet? And there's obviously a tension there as well because many of the research labs, you know, they publish to get grants, but if they publish, they would then compromise their ability to patent. But the longer you can wait to filing your patent, and the more life you have left in your patent, the more value. And obviously the patent also is the line in the sand that prevents other people from having prior art that detracts from whatever you've invented. So it's, again, it's a, it's a balancing act. Yeah, really important one though. Yeah, really important. Yeah. If I may, um, what would you say the significance of having a patent is in relation to the value or the potential commercialisation ability of something? versus someone that's just got a great idea. How does that affect the value? It depends where it is. So some of the things that I look at, for example, I go, great, you've got a great patent, but how do you enforce that patent? So if I've got a patent over a research tool, how do I know that someone isn't using my research tool in America, in Europe, and inventing something using that research tool, and they patent what they've invented from that research tool? So they've used it to find a drug. 
they, they, they don't ever have to disclose it. They've used my research tool. They just patent the drug that came out of it. So the drug has the value. So in looking at it, it's like, would you want to patent that research tool? And, you know, people go, yes, 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 patent, because that will get them their immediate term grants. It will get them their, their conversation dialogue here. But ultimately, that probably has compromised their ability to take it forward because what they should be doing is applying their research tool to identify the drug themselves and then they can patent it and that's where the value will come in. So it's complicated, as we've, as we've, as we've just discussed, on many levels around these opportunities. What are the benefits of investing in the life sciences sector, trying to turn around to a bit of a positive here? As a, that you potentially that you don't get when you look at you know resources plays or the well, money you, industry. You, you make money out of it. I mean, we're not doing it purely philanthropically. Excellent. Like, so, <laughs> yeah. So I mean, you know, we've taken medical devices through to market and drugs through to market and sold. Them. And you know, you, you're getting multiple, you know, ten times investment returns that came in. And there's you no know, examples from Western Australia that have done that. There's a whole pile of devices and. WA's got more drugs approved from base research than the rest of Australia. So absolutely, you know, that's why we're investing into it, to get a return. But on the other side of it, you are making a difference. I mean, if I go back to the original Argus biomedical polymer artificial cornea, there were people who had that device implanted and it gave them vision. I mean, yes, it wasn't as big a market as we ultimately wanted off the back of that because as we went through the trials, we realised it couldn't be used in a patient population, but it could be used in a subset and it, it, it gave them sight. I mean, that was pretty cool. That is the definition of pretty cool, Lydia. Yeah. That's absolutely the definition yes. of pretty cool. Uh, and that, that, that's really rewarding. I mean, there's other things that were way more financially rewarding, but, I mean, I, the thought of losing my sight, that's so abhorrent to me, the fact that you could fix that for at least some people. Mm, absolutely. Then we actually, the surgeon actually had people when we were rolling it up paying to fly across here to get assessed by the local surgeon here that was involved in that invention to see whether the device would fit. And on paper, with one of them, we were looking at it going, the device is not going to work with this patient for various reasons. But they were still so desperate that they did fly across and have a consult with a, a local surgeon to be told that, yes, our assessment was correct, the device wouldn't work, but also get guidance on some other options that might help. Yeah. What about you, Paul? I'd say another advantage of investing in medical technology is that the challenges of barriers to entry are actually advantages in excluding competition. So the barriers to entry I'm talking about are not just patents, but reimbursement paths that are, that are really important, regulatory approvals to enable you to sell your device in different jurisdictions. They are strong barriers to entry to competition. So unlike a lot of markets where one is very worried about competitors just leapfrogging over the top of you, if you do it right and protect your technology and set up these barriers to entry around the technology themselves with patents, the reimbursement paths, and also via regulatory approvals, the countries into which you could sell those products, basically you do get a head start on competition that enables you to sell. And sometimes if a medical device is solving a really, really important unmet need with a rare condition or something like that, you can even get extended periods or effectively a monopoly in that particular space. So that's a very powerful thing when, it, when it's done well. Yeah, so Domerics, again, it's not a device, but it's a drug. I mean, they're targeting a rare disease, focal segmental glomerulosclerosis, and that technology came from the Perkins in WA. 
And if that comes through, that's an orphan disease or a rare disease. So it will get extended approval windows at the end of a, a phase three trial that's currently being run in 70 sites globally. I mean, you know, it is something that WA has done that's taking it forward. And there's no treatments out there for these patients. But the other thing for, from Perth's perspective is there are a lot of people that you know, did what Paul said at the beginning, came back because they want their kids to grow up here. I did the same thing. I wanted my kids to grow up here. There's a lot of people that have done that into Perth. So you have people who've got huge experience across a range of things. They live here because they like it. And I think increasingly with the COVID changes, the remoteness, it's always an issue. It's always easier to sit down face-to-face -face with someone, but the remoteness you know, will be mitigated to some extent. You, know, you still have to get on a plane every so often to do it, but you can do it from Perth. And you know, right from the beginning when we started, you know, all of our projects have been done from Perth. You know, maybe it would have been easier to be based in Colorado or somewhere where the manufacturing was being done on these various bits and pieces, but you can do it from Perth. Yes. And the, the innovation and the invention is here. Well, the, the, the bit that's been problematic is the depth of the capital market. Yeah, well, that goes to my next question, actually, and, and probably the last question I wanted to wrap up on. We have a lot of capital and money in WA. Why do you, from your perspectives, from both of you, think that we don't see significant investment into these early-stage tech companies, biotech, medtech companies? And is there anything that we can do about it? I think there's a logical reason. I mean, it's the same reason as a investor, it's easier to invest in your own backyard because you can see people, you can catch up with them rather than doing it, you know, the other side of Australia or the other side of the world. So that's the first thing. But the other thing is it's always easier to invest into something that you understand. So if you made your money in mining, it's really easy to deploy your money back into mining. Or if you made your money in property, you deploy it back into property. And until we have a huge amount of success, you, you're always going to have a smaller amount deployed back into these spaces. But over the 20 years that we've been, maybe a bit longer, Paul, over the 20 plus years <laughs> that we've been doing it, we have seen more and more deployed. So the first projects that we got and that the companies that we did, most of the funding actually came from the US. So for Iceutica, which was a company that we built, bought, built and sold, the majority of that investment, we set up a US parent company that then had an Australian subsidiary that did all the innovation, ran a lot of it. So when it was sold very successfully, most of that money went back to our US investors. But then the next opportunity was to get, I guess, our fund. And so we're able to invest more from Australian investors. So the money comes back here. So you gradually come closer and closer to returning the funds to your, your local market because you de-risk it in terms of, you know, not that specific project, but you've got a team that's done it before, you've got a network that's done it before. But it's just a really slow process because each success is a, you know, 7 to 15-year project, really. Yeah. What about your thoughts, Paul? Yeah, I think that we're gradually developing more critical mass in terms of expertise. I think there is a, a real gap in terms of relevant analytical expertise around medical devices and also drug development as well. So we can help build that in Western Australia. But I also think that there are other really important skill sets, for example, in the regulatory area, right, and quality area, where there's a very limited number of people with the experience. As in Australia. In, in Australia generally, but in Western Australia in particular. And so it's actually very hard to recruit people with enough international deep experience. And so I think there are things that we can do, the government can help with as well, 
in terms of incentivizing those sorts of equipment, but also there are things where we can combine resources. So I'm a huge fan of plans to to do what they do in very successful biotech and medtech hubs like Israel, which is to you know have incubators and accelerators which actually have shared resources which people can use when they're a small company. Where basically you know it might be in the rec area, you know it might be in the patent area, it might be in other areas so that they could access the most experienced people rather than have to compromise and access people who've never done that sort of thing really before in that field. And so I think it's the expertise is really important to build that. And then more success stories. So as there are more exits, people will understand there are lots of ways of exiting a, an, an opportunity, getting a liquidity event for the investors. Maybe it's not always an IPO, especially in, in the current market. It's a challenging thing to do. But maybe it's a trade sale or a large license or an acquisition of part of the, the business. There's a lot of diversity there in, in exits. And I think that as there's more experience, investors will become for, more familiar with what's involved. I think the IPO market is actually not really an exit in itself, certainly not for the invest, uh, inventors and the founders, because you IPO it and the ASX will lock your shares in for two years as founder shareholders or founder investors. So you've got a two-year window from IPO to go forward. But then it's further compounded. If you continue to stay in a management role or a board role, you're completely constrained about when you can sell and when you can actually invest more of your own money into it because generally there's a whole pile of confidential information that's going on in the background that means that you, you can't disclose to the market because you might be in negotiations or you might be doing things. So it, it makes it quite difficult actually for anyone on the board of a biotech to actually trade or to invest more money. And you know, if you're going out for a fundraise, you can't participate in that fundraise unless it goes to shareholders. But if you've got a strategic investor coming in and you've got some institutional people coming in, you might not have the time or the finance to put on top of it another couple of hundred thousand dollar process to go out to all of your shareholder base to enable you, yourself as a director to participate as well. So it gets quite complicated, an IPO process and a listed process to keep investing. And a trade sale really is the best liquidity exit as an investor. And, you, and you're right to mention strategic investment. That's a very common interim financing strategy for medical devices companies. So someone who's big in medical devices like a striker, those sorts of companies, they all have their own venture funds, which can make strategic investments in particular technologies, and they will take a strategic stake. And that provides financial security for the first round of in investors so they don't have to keep going into their pockets. But those sorts of transactions are much, much easier in a private company than they are, as Lydia said, in, in the public world. But similarly, these are huge organisations. So you have to have a device that ultimately can make a difference on the bottom line of their PL if it goes forward. So an incremental improvement, unless it gives them some amazing advantage that means their machine will go from 20% market share to 100% market share and they're getting that benefit on an existing product. But an incremental improvement is just not something that will tap into them. And similarly, it, again, they're no different from any venture capital. It's always easier to invest in your own backyard. So unless we can invest and take these projects through to a stage where it's de-risked efficiently, it's very hard to attract that capital into the projects here. Excellent. Well, on that note, I think we could talk about IPOs and for the 
for another half an hour, but I'm going to let you go. So thank you very much for your time. It's Liddy, thanks Paul for sharing your insights and we'll talk to you again soon. Thank Thank you. This podcast has been brought to you by Life Sciences WA, which is Western Australia's Life Sciences Industry Association in collaboration with Talking Health Tech. It's been made possible with funding support from the Western Australian Government through the New Industries Fund and the Ready Initiative, managed by MTP Connect on behalf of the Medical Research Future Fund and with the support of Ant Health. If you liked this episode, please complete the feedback survey. There's a link to that survey you can access from within your podcast player. You can also follow Life Sciences WA on LinkedIn and Twitter or subscribe to the mailing list at lifesciencewa.com.au. Thank you.